The, uh, the text for this week is Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ and Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. In our prayers, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have had for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you, Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among you from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from this glorious power and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So um, one of the things we've been trying to do uh, with uh, uh, Thessalonians and I think is a good uh, target for us for a little while is to look at Paul's letters and figure out um, what kind of advice they have for us as a church, figure out what it is they're trying to say to us, and there's this, uh, there's this difficulty with that. Uh, and part of the difficulty is, and it's something that we've talked about a lot at Resurrection, uh, this idea that um, in many instances uh, we miss what is going on either in the context or uh, in the specific community that uh, Paul is addressing. And oftentimes we miss that because I think uh, we don't do uh, uh, the work that uh, we ought to do to really dig in and understand what uh, God is trying to say to another community. In fact, one of the things that we often do is uh, we, we, we take a good portion of the scripture uh, as, if, as if we know it before we examine it. And uh, in, in that kind of framework, what is, what is preaching? What is the point of preaching? Well, you know, in that framework, uh, preaching essentially means that we take a text that we all uh, agree on uh, what it said, and uh, you know the job of Trey or me or in some instances Lucia or whoever's up here is to do one of two things. Either uh, our goal is to help you apply what is said in the scripture, and like bonus points if uh, it has uh, three applications that all start with the same letter. That's like a home run. Or um, what, what we might also do is try and make it uh, relevant. So to say, here's a challenge in... Uh, an early church that is similar to a challenge that we face today. And neither of those goals are wrong, but one of the real difficulties is figuring out exactly how the challenge that a specific church faced is parallel to or informs a challenge that we face. Because, you know, you don't open up Colossians and uh, on one side of the coin, you know, there's not a whole lot of commentary about, you know, how you might become envious of other people by looking at a particularly good 
Facebook feed or, uh, you know, you don't, we don't really have a lot of experience with Paul's uh, opinions on the Instagram or on media or on rap music. I don't know. But the flip side is there's a lot of things about the context of, uh, you know, in this instance, uh, in the last instance, Thessalonica, in this instance, Colossae, you know, we don't have a ton of Facebook posts that say something like, uh, you know, nine out of ten people don't support the Gnosis enough to repost this, or honk if you're a Manichaean. These are all things that uh, are going on in the context of, the, uh, of this letter to Colossae. There's this, this really difficult heresy that Paul is addressing, and the question for us is to figure out what that heresy looked like so we can figure out exactly what it means or what it says to us. And so, I don't know, this is the kind of strategy I was going to stick to for, for a couple months of looking at Pauline letters is let's really do the hard work of digging into a context like Thessalonica and figure out what the real challenge for that church was. And it, it turns out the real challenge that the church faces is almost always compromising a commitment to the gospel by adopting something that is popular in the culture around them. So in Thessalonica, the challenge was, do I act like the Romans or do I act like the Dionysians? Do I try and drink away my sor- sorrows or do I try and kind of micromanage or control everything? And so... You know, let's kind of, if we kind of look at the same framework in Colossae, I think we start to see something really powerful about what this book has to say. And what is the temptation for the believers in the church in Colossae that Paul's writing to? It's different from the one in Thessalonica. The temptation that is going on for the believers here, and if you think back to uh, Thessalonica, Thessalonica was not primarily a, a Jewish town. It was folks who were kind of dealing with uh, their relationship to um, you know, what it meant to be Greek, what it meant to be Roman. There are a lot of pagan folk there, but, you know, the dominant cultural influence there was, uh, was not uh, dealing with the Jewish traditions. Now, Colossae is different. Colossae is a town where there is a substantial uh, a kind of Jewish history there. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a lot of folks who, you know, and there's some things that are similar. In Thessalonica, we know that the believers faced a bunch of social exclusion, and, you know, they had to swear to the imperial cult, and no one liked the Romans, and yada, yada, yada. Some of those things are pleasant, present here in Colossae, but uh, the, the basic challenge that the church in Thessalonica faced was not, do you act like the Romans, or do you act like the Dionysians? It was this, if you're a Christian trying to figure out how you're going to make sense of a world that's, you know, kind of cruel and kind of brutal and where you have to deal with this oppressive power. And, uh, you know, you're, you've been sitting around for a while and you're, you're basically sure that, you know, Jesus will come soon and fix your problems and, 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 and bring about redemption. And you're kind of struggling with uh, how to make all these different things make sense. And there's this temptation to you to go out and borrow something outside the gospel and use it to solve the problem that is your existence. Exactly like in Thessalonica where people borrowed from the Romans or borrowed from the Greeks. And what was the temptation for the folks in Colossae? What was this? There was this movement that was, had one foot in, uh, you know, the kind of old school Jewish nationalism, rebuilding the temple, making Israel great again. But woven into it was this other commitment, this other commitment towards being what we call a Gnostic. And we've talked about this before, but just to kind of you know, run, run back over the, the basic thrust in it. Uh, Gnosticism was this idea that the world around us is evil and is a prison and that there is somewhere secret spiritual truth that we could make manifest in the world if only we focused on it and knew it. And if we said the right rituals or we did the right things, <clears throat> if we, I don't know, 
uh, had a list of things that we'd visualize, and by visualizing, we'd make them come into existence. Gnosticism was this basic principle that said that the world that is created is evil, and it is about uh, chaining or tying the little teeny divine part of you to a body that is a husk uh, and that doesn't really matter that much. Gnosticism is the idea that uh, what happens with your life, with the people around you, with the world around you, doesn't matter that much because everything that happens in physical reality is just an illusion. And the truth is there's this secret divine spark that we need to set free in ourselves and set free in others. And if we do that, there's a totally different path to salvation. That's the challenge that the church was facing. That a bunch of people were like, look, you know, I'm kind of having a difficult time following Christian doctrine and following the the things the church asks of me. And what looks awfully attractive is to go back and practice these arcane rituals that connect me with my Judaism and, and introduce me to a spiritual secret that I have by engaging in this practice over and over. And what the Gnostic Jewish folk would say in this context, the the big uh, temptation for the church, the real thing that I think kind of got Paul's dander up was this, that these folks that would say, hey, you know, the world is like an illusion and all this stuff doesn't really matter that much and there's this secret divine spark inside of you and we need to set it free by, I don't know, meditating or doing X, Y, or Z practice. The thing that really got Paul's blood boiling and the reason why he thought that that was something that was very difficult to square in any meaningful way with Christian doctrine, is Paul's basic point is that Jesus Christ came to redeem the world. Bodies, our history, our relationships to one another. And what really got Paul's dander up about this turn to Gnosticism was that it denied that what we did mattered. That what we did in terms of our lives, in terms of our bodies, in terms of our relationship to other people mattered that all these folks that were running around and spouting this crazy doctrine that reality was a prison and there was a divine spark inside you. Paul thought it was silly as a theological proposition, but what really made him mad about it in reading Colossians is that Paul thought that it was a recipe for denying that you had an obligation to pursue the kingdom, to make the world better to change the way that you relate to yourself, to others, and to God. So that's the, that's the basic point of this letter, as I understand it. Paul is, just like he was in the context of Thessalonica, putting the Christians in Colossae on blast a little bit. And he's putting them on blast by saying, look, don't give in to this temptation to embrace Jewish Gnosticism. So don't give in to the temptation to do three things. Don't give in to the temptation to think that you could have pure ceremonies that would get you back to God. Don't give in to the temptation that there's some secret spiritual wisdom out there that you need to find by focusing on esoteric stuff. And don't give in to the temptation to say that what happens with your body and the things that you do doesn't matter. Because in the end, what Paul is really doing is he's putting the church on blast for one thing. He's saying that when you give in to these temptations, you are denying the importance of and the fullness of Jesus Christ by saying that there is a ceremony or a secret wisdom or something else out there that could make you fuller and more complete. Now let's turn directly to the text and look at how how it bears out here. And the, the overarching question I want you to ask about as we kind of work through this is, 
Why is, in Colossians, Paul constantly talking about fullness and fruitfulness? There's these themes that appear over and over and over. They're the themes that open the letter. He's talking about fullness and fruitfulness. So take verse 5. He says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you, just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among you from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. Fruitfulness. And then, of course, fullness. Look at 9 and 10. We have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual understanding so that you may lead lives uh, that are worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, so that you may bear good fruit in every work as you grow in the knowledge of God. Why is Paul emphasizing fullness and fruitfulness? Now, the, first, the easier one to answer is, well, let's we'll start with fruitfulness. So, the big temptation for these folks who are worried about, you know, uh, doing this kind of Gnostic Jewish interpretation of, of the world, these folks that thought that, you know, what you did with your body, what you, you know, choices you made, whether or not to be moral or immoral, uh, whether or not to uh, hurt other people or help other people. These folks who were Gnostics that believed that the world basically didn't matter and what you needed to do is get rid of the body because there is this divine spark in you. It's not surprising that they'd do one of two things. They'd say either you should deny your body every pleasure because your body just like, it's a husk, it doesn't really matter and the best way to fight your tie to that reality is that you shouldn't feed the beast by feeding it pleasures. That's one Jewish Gnostic position. And the second one is to say, well, look, your body doesn't matter, so just do whatever you want. Like, go out and engage in every kind of pleasure, carnal pleasure, food, drink, whatever, because really what happens to your body isn't that relevant. It doesn't matter, because what matters is the secret spiritual wisdom that you can find through our rituals and through our practices. And look, Paul is saying the point of being a Christian is that Jesus has come to redeem the world so that your body and your practices and the person that you are and the things that you do can bear fruit in terms of bringing about the kingdom. Paul is saying that we don't have the right to give up on trying to make things better, trying to make things more fruitful, trying to take our faith and use it to make an impact in the world, to change things and to do things that we believe are good and uh, that introduce us to the world as the, as the feet and hands and face of Christ. Our job, according to Paul here, is to be fruitful representatives of the kingdom of God and that anyone that denies that we have an obligation to create that kind of fruitful response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ has missed the faith. The in, in these Gnostic traditions that were pop, pop, popular at uh, Colossae at the time, one of the most interesting things you see is how people would think about the poor. What do you imagine? These folks that are Gnostics, they say reality is a, a, you know, a, a kind of prison for the divine spark inside you. And they think about how they ought to respond to the poor. Anybody have a shot at what they'd, what they'd do? Did they care? Yeah, they'd look at the poor and they'd say, well, you know, and funnily enough, this is something that's constantly repeated in a number of Western versions of Eastern spirituality these days. They'd say, the problem is not that person's poverty. 
The problem is that that person is too tied to the material world. And if only that beggar understood that uh, they shouldn't be invested in feeding themselves, they could set themselves free spiritually. Which to me isn't a very good answer. Paul is saying that if we were to make our bodies and our practices and our faith fruitful in the world, we can't look at instances of brokenness and sickness and poverty and sadness and say that we don't have an obligation to fix it. The first big obligation that Paul is trying to talk to the folks in the community in Colossae about is that we need to make our faith fruitful and making our faith fruitful requires that we invest in and that we do things that make the world right. Now, why fullness? Fruitfulness, as Paul saying to these folks, and as we work through the letter, we'll look at lots of instances where the temptation for the church was to say, what we do in our faith doesn't matter that much. What we do in the physical world doesn't matter that much. You know, all we have to do is search out the secret wisdom. And Paul says, no, that's not what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is about making our lives fruitful for him. Why full? Why does he emphasize not only fruitfulness, but fullness? Well, I think... Well, uh, Look, at, look closely at 10 and 11 again. Filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. <clears throat> the community of folks that Paul is addressing in Colossae, the temptation in Colossae is not only the temptation to not think about our faith as requiring fruitfulness. But the other thing that people were really struggling with is people who had uh, offered up this uh, alternative vision of Christianity that was based on uh, this Gnostic spiritual practice would say something like, you can imagine, you know, don't worry about doing the things that the gospel has called you to do. You can find a new and fuller understanding of your faith by looking for this secret wisdom. That if you turn to these Gnostic principles and practices, that if you see yourself as a person who uh, your body is a, a, a husk or a cage for a divine spark inside you, and if you kind of forget about the material world and you really focus on secret spiritual doctrines that can be revealed to you by uh, following this practice, the thing that people in Colossae heard and the thing that the people in the church heard was that they could live better, fuller lives by seeking out this uh, spiritual secret that was made uh, manifest in their community by following exactly the prescribed spiritual practices. The reason why Paul is talking about fullness and not just fruitfulness is he wants to make the case that for us, the fullness of our lives, the fullness of what we are called to do, the fullness of spiritual experience, the fullness of what is offered to us is made complete in the person of Jesus Christ Full stop. That there is no other experience or, or dynamic or, or ritual or kind of wisdom or doctrine or way of thinking about the world that can make us any fuller than focusing on and coming to know Jesus Christ in Jesus' fullness. In other words, that at the resurrection and in his raising and in the redemption of reality in the person of Jesus Christ, we are offered a faith that is fruitful and full. 
and that it is fruitful and full in its entirety to make us able to not only deal with the struggles of this world, but to understand the importance of and to look towards the coming of the kingdom with joy and to look towards the the brokenness of the world with scorn so that we can become agents of God's love and God's kingdom, of the fullness and fruitfulness in the person of Jesus Christ. And finally, as he ends up in the next section, we're going to look at next week, Paul goes into this this description of the character of Jesus Christ. That's one of the longest, famous run-on sentences in the Bible. It's like this kind of overwhelming, beautiful, uh, overflowing poetry about the character of Jesus and who Jesus is and what kind of uh, fruitfulness and fullness is found in Jesus Christ. But it is my belief, especially at the end of our passage today, that the main point and the main reason why Paul is making all these claims, the thing that he sees is the core of the faith and the, the, the fix for this confused community in Colossae, which was trying to figure out it, looking for fullness and looking for fruitfulness somewhere else. What Paul says is that they need to return to what? They need to be made strong by returning with all the strength that comes from the glorious power of Christ, which prepares us to endure everything with patience and while giving joyful thanks to the Father. And the crucial thing, the most beautiful theological portion of the, se- the portion of the section for today theologically is this element in verse 13. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his Son. The Greek there for rescued us is exactly the same word as we'd use to describe an epic quest by a hero. The word is erusato. It's almost the kind of thing that in ancient Greek literature you would have used to frame someone as an action figure, the kind of person that takes on an epic, epic quest and solves a, a, a big problem by slaying a big giant. But the beautiful thing about it is he says that Jesus comes and acts on our behalf to save us, And what does he do? What is the result of it? The Greek word there is exousias. He takes us out of sin's jurisdiction and places us in a new kingdom. What's so beautiful about what Paul is saying here is that the heroic aspect of Jesus Christ is not simply that he was able to face and defeat sin and death. Of course, that's a hugely significant part of it, but that in resurrecting, Jesus Christ was able to put us in a new community with a new set of rules, a new kind of purpose, and a new way of relating to one another, that the kingdom of God is not simply about the defeat of sin, though it is, but it's also about orienting us towards a world where we can love both him and each other more fully, that Jesus is full in and of himself and able to make a world which is new and redeemed and that to think about any other solution to or answer to or way of finding fruitfulness or fullness in this world that doesn't start and end with the person of Jesus Christ is not only a, uh, a, a lie but is, uh, is, is a, a quest that could never be fulfilled. That's the point that Paul is making to this community and that he'll be working through in the entirety of Colossians, that Jesus Christ Uh, Faith in Jesus is fruitful, and Jesus is, in and of himself, full and able to make right everything that we require. Amen. Questions or talk?